Well, a few weeks ago, I introduced you to a man named Hugh Latimer. Now, unless you have done much studying in church history, maybe you don't know who Latimer is. In fact, yesterday was the anniversary of Hugh Latimer and his friend Nicholas Ridley's execution. In 1555, both were burned at the stake because of their Protestant doctrines. Latimer had come to faith under the teaching of Bilney, and Thomas, Sir Thomas Bilney was a pastor in London, and of course Bilney had come to, come to know the gospel through the letter of 1 Timothy, which was why I made mention of Latimer. Ultimately, as I just said, Latimer and Ridley were executed as rebellious sinners of the state. The king of England had sentenced them to death because they had a resolve. They stood against the king and his nefarious doctrines that sought to distort scripture and confuse the gospel. And ultimately, because of their doctrine of justification by faith alone, there was another man, a third man, who was a close companion to them. He, in fact, was their boss. His name was Thomas Cramner. And Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was what is the Pope to the Church of England to, as to the Roman Catholic Church. He is the leader of the church in England. And Cramner also believed in justification by faith alone, also taught the gospel as we have come to understand it. But Cramner was forced to recant on a number of articles. The king had threatened to execute him as well. And Thomas Cramner was at, a, was at the execution of both Ridley and Latimer, and came under such conviction of his recantations that he returned to his previous faith, and this infuriated the king. Ultimately, Cramner was locked away for a number of years, and he himself would be executed because of his beliefs in the doctrine of justification. And upon his death, he said this, wherein I have written many things untrue, referring to his recantation of the gospel, his denial of the faith, and truly making a shipwreck of his life. And forasmuch as my hand offended, in, offended thee in writing, contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first to be punished. For I may come to the fire, it shall be burned first. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist, with all his false doctrine. You see, Cramner knew the true gospel. And when he faced the flame, he thought, why, why not burn my hand first? Because my hand was the one who wrote all of those false statements. What would lead men like Cramner and Latimer and Ridley to, to face the, the gallows or face the flames? It was a resolve. It was a commitment to the gospel. Now, while you and I do not face similar temptations or, or trials, we're, we're not threatened by the state to be executed because of our belief in justification by faith alone, we do face this crossroad in our lives. Will we contend for the faith? Will we confront false doctrine? Will we confront those 
who perpetuate error in our church? Will we stand on the truth? Will we, will we, as the Apostle Paul calls young Timothy, to wage the good war or fight the good fight? Do you yourself possess this resolve? Would you simply right away your belief in order to save your own life? By God's grace, through the trial of both Latimer and Ridley, Cramner had been thrown out to Satan, but yet God used it to redeem his life. In fact, when we gather on the Lord's Day, you may not know this, but just a little extra treat for you this morning, our liturgy, our order of service, was written by Thomas Cranmer. In fact, much of the Baptist liturgy handed down throughout history comes from Latimer or from Cranmer's own hands. A man of resolve, a man who once shipwrecked his faith, but by the grace of God was redeemed. Now, just to remind us of where we've been in 1 Timothy, Paul has sent his younger protege in the faith, his mentee in the faith, to a church that Paul himself planted a number of years ago, the church in Ephesus. And subsequently, between the time of its start and the time in which Paul now writes to Timothy, the church has become unsettled in its doctrine. Its teaching has become off And Paul is sending Timothy down there to order the doctrine and teaching ministry of the church. This is very different than Titus's task. Titus was to go to Crete to order the church's leadership to install elders in each of the local congregations that it might have an ordered polity or governance. Here in Ephesus, Timothy was to order the teaching ministry of the church because it was the teaching ministry that had drifted into error. And Paul had begun the letter by reminding Timothy of the gospel and exhorting Timothy in these very early verses that he had a responsibility. And here, as he concludes this first chapter... And begins to round out the charge, the the responsibility, the assignment given to Timothy. He concludes by restating his charge to Timothy to deal with false teachers by warning him of what results of those who go down this path. In other words, not only does Paul restate what he's already said. But he warns Timothy of going down the same path. You know, so often when when folks face false doctrine, false teaching, and you you begin to listen to it, and the enemy begins to tempt you with it, you begin to say, you know, is is it really that bad? Loves is love, after all. I mean, they they love each other. I mean, who am I to say that? That that isn't love. This is just a contemporary example of perhaps something that you yourself have heard whispered in your ear from the evil one. First Timothy chapter one, I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. 
We're going to be considering this morning these final verses in chapter 1. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, I've summarized Paul's point in this statement, that Christians must guard the teaching ministry of the local church against theological error with faith and a good conscience. In all seriousness and urgency for the sake of souls. There is an ought to and a must in this charge. First to Timothy and then to us. That we must guard the teaching ministry of the local church against theological errors. It's not a we should or we might or if we get to it. It must be a priority. We must guard what we teach. Not because we're mean. Not because we're proud and think we know better than others. But because it is for the sake of souls. We confront air because we don't want people going to hell deceived. It's, it's out of love. But we must do so with the weapons of warfare that God has equipped his church with. And that isn't by being mean and being jerks and pointing fingers and being ungracious. But with faith and a good conscience. These are the weapons of war that the Lord has given his church. Faith and a good conscience. And with these weapons, we can wage and we can stand up against any theological error, big or small. And we must do it with all seriousness and urgency. With that in mind, I want us to think about this warning that Paul gives us. I hope this morning that you are convinced that it is not the responsibility merely of the pastors and professionals, but it is you this morning. If you are warming that pew, if you are a member of this local church, it is your responsibility just as much as it is my responsibility and the elders' responsibility to deal with false doctrine. To put it simply... When you turn up into heaven, Jesus will ask you this question, brothers and sisters. How did you deal with false teaching in your church? Did you ignore it? Did you not think it was a big deal? Did you think it was someone else's job? And Jesus will say, I told you clearly in my word, it was your responsibility. But I also want to warn you this morning. I want us to warn us that if we don't take false doctrine seriously, we will find our own souls shipwrecked. 
Because false teaching has a way of taking out as many souls as it can. And we must take it seriously. So how do we go about this task? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us uh, three tasks before us. Number one, we must see it as our responsibility. I think this is implicitly clear in the text. We must see it as our responsibility. Secondly, we must approach false doctrine with resolve. No one puts their hand in a flame that doesn't have resolve for the truth. No one isn't willing to lose friends if they don't have resolve for the truth. Thirdly, we must have the proper aim in mind. What's the goal of confronting? Is it just a clean house? Is it just to push people away? Is it just to marginalize? Is it, is it just to, to set up an us versus them? No, we must see that restoration and renewal of the one who has run aground is our goal. And we'll see this morning was Paul's goal of Jimenez and Alexander. Number one, the responsibility to deal with false teaching. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul restates here in these first verses, Timothy's task to deal with false teachers. Paul says, this charge, what charge, Paul? Well, the charge that Paul had made, made back in verse 3. He said, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In other words, Paul had given Timothy the responsibility to order the teaching ministry of the church by teaching the gospel. Timothy had a responsibility to deal with false teaching by exposing it with the truth. You see, that's how you confront error, is by shining the light of the truth. That's why the, that's why the Apostle John will often use this idea of truth and light and error and darkness. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. They like to live in deception because they love the darkness more than the light. The light exposes our error. And so the assignment that was given to, given to Timothy by the apostle was then to order the church's teaching both positively and negatively. Positively, it was to be ordered by the regular preaching and teaching of the gospel. And so, didactically, every week, the, the, the church's doctrine here is ordered through expositional preaching. A commitment that the Bible is the main idea that we want to consider and apply it to our lives together contemporarily in the 21st century. That's what we hope to do week in and week out. Whoever is assuming this desk has one job, and that is to make the Bible clear, the text clear, and apply it to your life. That's all we're doing. In other words, we're not coming up here with five steps to a better you. I don't even know how to do that, number one. 
I've asked around. I don't even know how to come up with that kind of sermon. But it's not about giving you some program that we've kind of concocted in the background. You know, all the pastors get together and on the whiteboard and come up with, hey, what does the church need? But rather, it's a different posture. It's saying, oh, Jesus seems to care about his church a whole lot. He calls it his bride. He's not going to leave his bride. He's not going to abandon his bride. And so what does he do? He gives his bride his word and such that we sit under the word. And so the word instructs us and teaches us and informs us. It regulates us such that we do only what the word tells us to do. That's why we sing, because we're commanded. Why we read scripture, because we're commanded. Why we gather together to pray for one another and pray corporately and privately. Why? Because we, because the pastors thought it was a good idea? Because some Christians a, a thousand years ago thought it was a good idea? No, because Jesus commanded his church to do these things. Positively, he was to order the church's teaching by the regular preaching and teaching ministry. But negatively, he was to deal with it by confronting error, by calling sin, sin. I love this passage because Paul names names. Isn't it frustrating when people are like, well, you know, there's this really bad thing going on out there in the world. You know, there's some there's some air out there. You know, there's pe those people right? you love that, you know, that <laughs> preachers get pastors get all the time. Right. There are some people in the church who, who think who, who think some things. You, you mean you and your family think some things. Uh, these people who are these people. Right. But the Apostle Paul, he names names. Right. Hemanus and Alexander, probably teachers in the church, like pastors, like, yeah, pastor, pastor Hemanus is who I'm talking about. He confronts it. He deals with it. So so here he's restating. But I love what Paul does here because he doesn't merely just say, Timothy, go get to work. But he reassures him as he restates the charge. Look how he reassures Timothy in two ways. First, he says, listen, Timothy, you're my child. Now, we've already considered this idea, and so I won't spend a lot of time here. But let me remind you of, ch of chapter 1, verse 2. Look what he says in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Well, what does he mean? Well, not only is... Is Timothy his child? But read it the other way. Paul's his daddy. In other words, you mess with Timothy, you mess with Paul. That's a serious deal, right? He calls him his true child or his child. He's reminding him that he is authorized and equipped, that he is his representative there in Ephesus. It is as if Paul himself is down there cleaning up the church. Paul has given him his authority and equipped him. A child knows how to behave because a parent has taught them. In fact, children reflect their parents. All right? So if you complain about how bad your kids are, it's because, well, you taught them to be that way. Sorry to burst your bubble. Only kidding. Paul said, we'll say similarly, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22, he, listen to how he writes. He's, he's writing to the church in Philippi and he says this. Hey, y'all know Timothy's proven worth. 
How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Man, I want people to talk like that about me, right? His proven worth, he's a proven lieutenant in my army. He is proven. He is not going to abandon. He is not going to desert. He's not like John Mark. He's going to stick with it. Timothy was to confront these false teachers out of this relationship, it was to give him confidence. And wouldn't it give you confidence to know that your parents have your back? That your dad, your spiritual father has your back? That you've been equipped and trained to face all that you will face? That he's not throwing you to the wolves, but that he has shown you the way? But this was also, I think, a warning to the false teachers. That Timothy isn't timid Timmy, but he has a big monster behind him in the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul ain't, ain't messing around. He's ready to come down there and whoop, whoop some butt if he needs to. But not only that, notice secondly, he gives him a word of affirmation. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, that is by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. In other words, Paul is, 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 is encouraging and reassuring Timothy by reminding him that God has called him to this post. In accordance with means by the standard, by this standard, you have been called. This means that the basis of his ministry was the divine prophecy and affirmation of the Ephesian elders. Now, we don't have a lot of biblical text that we can draw on to help round out, well, what does this mean? What does this look like? We really don't know. All we know is something happened at the ordination service of young Timothy that Paul is alluding to, and he'll refer to it again later in the letter. And so 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have. And I would assume that means the gift of teaching, of eldering, of pastoring, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, there was this affirmation of the elders in Ephesus saying that you or or wherever they were, maybe it was in Ephesus, maybe it wasn't, but, but the, these elders were affirming, Timothy, you are ready to do the job. There's a lot we could speak about this, about the kind of ministry that a lot of men take on in their world. In other words, I've met a lot of pastors that think they should be pastors, but nobody else does. That's a problem, all right? That's not a place of strength, all right? That's a place of weakness. In other words, as a congregation, just a, just a quick application of this is that as a congregation, we congregationally affirm whether or not someone is an elder or not. All right. So that there's no lifetime pastorate here. All right. In other words, when someone moves on, we just don't know anymore. All right. We just don't know. There is an affirmation that we are affirming them as a pastor of this local church, an affirmation that we see that God's hand is upon them. 
And Paul then goes on to say that by them, look again at the text, by them, by these prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. In other words, they are to be the foundation by which you go about the work of ministry. Now, we're not Timothy. We're not being appointed by the Apostle Paul to go to Ephesus. But we still have a responsibility to deal with false teaching. Implicitly here, Paul is making clear that the local church is the ground in which we wage this war against false doctrine. We ought to oppose it with the same divine enablement confidence that Paul offers Timothy. We ought to know that God has given us the responsibility and he's equipped us to carry out the responsibility. All right? So brothers and sisters, don't feel, man, I'm not well equipped. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't I can't quote all these verses like some of these other people do. It's okay. If you have the spirit, then you are well equipped. If you have the faith once for all delivered to the saints and a clear conscience, you are well equipped. We, brothers and sisters, ought to hold this high expectation and commitment for one another. We ought to hold the, the expectation of those who teach in our church. We should never take lightly. We should never say, oh, let's just throw so-and-so up there. He'll give us a good lesson today. Not at all. Many churches have been run aground by that kind of laziness and lax in the teaching ministry of the church. I will say also, give grace and patience to your pastors when they might pull back on someone whom we might say isn't quite ready to teach publicly. Oh, pastor, I think he's the greatest preacher ever. Okay, he may be, but only time will prove that. Remember what Paul will say to the church here in chapter 3. Do not be quick to lay hands on others. And let, lest you puff them up and, and their soul is run aground. So, 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 so be patient with us as well when we say, mm, maybe not. Maybe not yet. Um, let me just help you out there for just a minute. Did you know that not yet doesn't mean no? There you go. You think about that this afternoon. As Christians in the local church, we must see this task as our responsibility. But we must understand that it is not an easy task. It is not one that we should take lightly. And therefore, it requires a resolve to deal with it. It is not something that most will run headlong into but will often run from. This is why we must have the resolve to deal with it. Look at what he says. He goes on. To wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Dealing with false teachers is akin to fighting a war. It is serious and it is urgent. Look at what Paul says. He doesn't just say, hey, go down there and, and uh, you know, clean up, get things straightened up a little bit, and, and you just, you know, just get down there and teach. No, he says, go to war. Wage the good 
war. Wage the right war. Friends, the language is clear that the task would not be easy. There is no war that is easy. There is no war that is is without casualties, without infliction, without pain, without scars. And some of you all have been in those wars and those scars still carry over to today. They may have been 30, 40, 50 years ago, but those scars are just as fresh as they were then. It is a war. And Timothy was to approach this war with two fronts. Number one, by holding the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Notice what he says. Holding faith and a clear conscience. Holding faith. Now, now Paul isn't referring to Timothy's faith, like having faith, but rather holding to the faith. Holding to the faith as as once for all delivered to the saints. The, The objective truth of the gospel. This is why Paul will spend, or spent rather, so much time on the gospel in verses 12 through 17. You see, because it's the faith, this objective truth that we have to hold on to and we cannot let go. It is what Paul will refer to later as the pillar, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. If the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, then they need to know the truth, right? Well, we need to uphold and teach the truth if we are to be the light of truth to the world. If we're confused about what is true, what is right, and what is wrong, then the world is going to continue in its confusion. But our responsibility is to uphold the truth, to be clear that this is true, right, and good. What is true, right, and good? What God has revealed in his word. So similarly, Paul will say in chapter 6 that Timothy was to fight the good fight of the faith. In other words, the war is over the faith, not Timothy's faith, not their personal faith, but the faith, the gospel, the truth revealed in God's word. But not only that, they were to hold the faith, but they were also, he was to wage war with a clear conscience or a good conscience, rather. Holding faith and a good conscience notice he modifies conscience with good not a bad conscience not a not a confused conscience but a a good conscience in this letter a conscience is very important to the apostle paul so a number of examples in in verse 5 of chapter 1 paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith there it is again faith and conscience together A good conscience. In chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul will say that, that they, the deacons, must hold the mystery of the faith and a clear conscience. There it is again. Faith and conscience together. They hold the faith once for all, this doctrinal propositions, and they do so with a clear conscience. Or in chapter 4 and verse 2. 
as he speaks about the false teachers through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We'll see in just a moment that what has led to the shipwrecked faith of these false teachers is their conscience. You disturb your conscience, brothers and sisters. You weaken your conscience. Your faith will soon follow. What is conscience? Well, should we follow the advice of old Jiminy Cricket and let our conscience be our guide? Our conscience is our moral and reasoning center. It's what informs our decision-making process. It's, It's what informs whether or not we do what we do or don't do what we do. It's that little voice inside of us that says that, hey, if I touch that stove, it's going to hurt really, really bad. But some of us are so twisted that we touch the stove anyways. A good or healthy conscience is convicted when led into sin, but a weak conscience is left unbothered by sin. Our conscience, Paul says, In Romans chapter 2, that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts when their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them. In other words, our conscience tells us, even when we're not Christians, that sin is sin. But what we do is we suppress the truth with lies. We suppress our consciences and we weaken it. We, We lock it up and we beat it. We tell it to be quiet. Stop talking. And we suppress it. We don't feed it. And so it doesn't come out and and bother us when we want to do things our own way. The Apostle Paul would similarly write, to the pure all things are pure. This is Titus 1. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled, he says. As a believer, our our conscience is being renewed day by day. Our conscience is being informed positively day by day through our study of God's word. We, we, we're, we're coming to know the truth and understand the truth. And our conscience is being informed so that when we are faced with sin, our conscience is like a little alarm that goes off that this is wrong. If I touch this hot stove, it will burn me. So we don't touch the stove. But a weak conscience is one that flirts. Maybe if I just touch the edge of the stove. Maybe if I just slide my finger over the top of the burner, it won't burn me. Little by little, we warm ourselves to air. And ultimately, we drift away. Brothers and sisters, we must first and foremost understand that dealing with air, theological air, is war. And that this war has an enemy. And, and, and let me say that if we don't deal with air, that doesn't mean the enemy goes away. But when we do deal with air, the enemy is heightened. He loves theological error. He loves people to be deceived. And so we want to understand that when we confront air, his attacks will soon follow. 
More than that, we must approach by cultivating doctrine in our life. We want to take seriously doctrine. All right? We're, we're not trying to just be a bunch of eggheads and, and really smart about doctrine here so that you can kind of regurgitate it. Not at all. What we're hoping to do by reading passages like the Apostles' Creed, reading the Nicene Creed of 325 and, and 381, why do we do that? Just so you can know these things and, and sound cool at some sort of parlor party? Not at all. It is so that you can understand that there is a, is a wealth of history of brothers and sisters just like us who have waged the good war over a lifetime. And that there have been theological errors that the church has faced. And if we don't know them, then we will, we will fall into the same ones. We will fall victim to the same errors of the past if we don't study church history, if we don't know the saints who have gone before as an inspiration to us to continue to fight the good fight. Brothers and sisters, the, the principles of interpretation aren't meant for seminary classes, but for us in the local church. So that each of us are equipped in our homes, in our small groups, in our, in our private reading of the Bible, in our Sunday school classes, in the regular hearing of God's word. We are well equipped when we have right doctrine and right minds. Calvin says it this way, have faith and a good conscience and everything else will follow. Negatively, he says it this way, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. It's true. It starts with the conscience. And that is why we must invest. And so Paul concludes with this warning. The reason to deal with false teaching comes in verses 19 and 20. That second half of verse 19, he says, by rejecting this, what? A good conscience. That this is a reference to the good conscience. By rejecting a good conscience, con Shins, rather, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. It was their conscience that had been neglected and it ultimately read, led them down the road they now found themselves on. Notice how he describes their abandonment of the faith. They have made a shipwreck of their faith or the faith. A shipwreck. They, they've run their ship aground. They have completely demolished it they have blown up their lives and he goes on to name them Himenus and alexander and again we don't know a whole lot from about them um, in chapter or in uh second timothy uh two paul mentions Himenus again it may be the same guy may not be alexander was a kind of common jewish name which is probably why it had a jewish flavor to their false teaching but it seems from 2 Timothy, it was an over, what's called an over-realized eschatology. An over-realized understanding of the end times. It was an over-understanding that the resurrection had already happened. Uh, it could be akin to, to those today who, who have this over-realized eschatology. Oh, Jesus is coming again in you know, this particular day. On this particular moment in time. It's sort of over-realized. And, and so, regardless of how we understand the exact nature of it, we see that, notice what he says, 
that they will learn not to blaspheme. In other words, we need to understand that any attack against the gospel is a blasphemous attack. It's similar to what I read earlier from 1 John. Whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord also confesses that Jesus is Son. And so the heart of those who had fallen away there were those who were saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And thus was a blasphemous statement as well. Regardless of it, Paul makes clear that they have made a shipwreck of their faith. And so the idea here is that it must be dealt with urgently, lest others wreck their own faith. See, there's an urgency to deal with it because false teaching spreads. It's not insulated. It never stays with just one person or one family. It always has a way of making its, its way through the congregation. Maybe not explicitly where someone is like, yes, I believe that false doctrine. But it does happen implicitly by causing doubt and division and discouragement among weaker saints. Notice also, not only to deal with it urgently, but seriously. Paul says, among whom are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan. Jeez, Paul, seems a bit extreme. That they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul says that he's handed these men over to Satan. I thought he was a, a minister of reconciliation, a minister of the gospel. What, what is he What's this dealing with Satan? Why why is he doing this? Well, what Paul has in mind in this passage is is what has been coined excommunication. To excommunicate someone in a Protestant sense, in a biblical sense, in an evangelical sense, is to remove them from fellowship in a local church. We do not believe it means in a Catholic sense to to remove from salvation or any thereto acceptance. In other words, you can't go to heaven if you've been excommunicated from the church. That's not what Paul means at all by this, nor the rest of the New Testament. What Paul means is that to remove from the local church, to excommunicate, communion, you hear the word? Excommunion, someone, means to remove them from the means of grace God has given. Where God's blessing is bestowed is in the communion of the saints. And the regular teaching of God's word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Did you know that you get faith through the preaching of God's through, through the preaching of God's word every week. That's how you get that little jolt of faith. It isn't because the pastors here are just amazing preachers. That, not that at all. It is because something miraculous and mysterious happens when God's word is preached faithfully. The spirit takes it and rejuvenates your weak faith and my weak faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10. Do we not all eat the same blood and uh, eat the same bread and drink the same blood? Do we not all fellowship, koinonia, fellowship around this table? There is a, this is a means of God's grace in our lives. And so to remove someone from that is to cast them out to Satan 
where they do not receive those same protections that they would among the saints. Paul would similarly exhort the church in Corinth, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. That is, he committed adultery. This man was committing adultery. And Paul says to the church, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul did this as a warning, a seriousness, a false doctrine. It wasn't to be played around with. It wasn't to be flirted with. It was to be dealt with definitively, lest it spread among those in the church. But, and this is where many miss the point, that dealing with false teachers must have the right aim in mind. It must be done, hopefully, with restoration in mind. Notice what Paul says, verse 20. Look again at it. I've handed them over to Satan that purpose statement so that they may learn not to blaspheme. The word that Paul uses there to learn is to be discipled, to be instructed. It's not disciplinary. All right? It was meant to be instructive. Paul does not mean this to be negative, but rather positive. The aim of church discipline always, if it's biblical church discipline, is... To be restorative. Never to condemn. This is what differentiates Protestant, evangelical, biblical church discipline from that of theological error in Roman Catholicism. And why we believe that the Catholics are in error in this doctrine of excommunication. Because excommunication is to be restorative. It is to lead to repentance. Let me read to you again that passage from 1 Corinthians 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see it again? In both instances, when, when, when Paul is telling the church to kick somebody out, right? That's how we're, that's how you, that's the nomenclature, right? Kick them out. That, oh, when you kick them, they've been kicked out of church. Well, <laughs> the aim of that wasn't to be punitive, but to be restorative, so that they would learn their stinking lesson. Do you discipline your children because you're mean? Or do, did you discipline your children because you're mean? You, because you didn't want the best for them? Because you didn't like them? Because you're just a jerk? Well, I hope not. You disciplined your children because you wanted them to learn, right? It was instructive. It was meant to be positive. Though, the, though they, no, 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 we, when we are being disciplined, feel that it's negative and we're being bullied or beat up, the goal is restorative. It's meant to lead to repentance. Brothers and sisters, we must see when we deal with theological error, and, and, and we have to have this, because if not, we're just going to be sour and, and, and mean, and, and, right? So, so 
let this word be in your soul when you're confronting those who are living in sin. Is your goal just to be right? Just to show someone, hey, you're living in sin? Ha, and I'm not? Ha, that's sin. Or is it to lead them to the truth to say, look, there is a better way. There is yet a better way. This does not lead to life, but to death. Let me show you the way of life. Is it the aim of restoration? Brothers and sisters, we, we must not see theological error as someone else's problem, but we must deal with it urgently ourselves. We, we must embrace it with these, these dual ideas of both holding the faith, having a good understanding of doctrine ourselves, studying, reading about church history, understanding doctrinal errors of the past. But we also have to have a clear conscience. Here's the truth. If you're living in secret sin, you'll never confront the sins of others. It's just the truth. If you yourself are being convicted that you're not living a godly life before a holy God, you will never ever in your lifetime ever call someone to holiness. Why? Because those who live in the darkness don't want to be in the light. And if you're in darkness... You're not going to ever lead someone to the light because you don't want to be in the light. That's why we must all encourage one another to live in the light, to forsake sin and to embrace the cross, to find forgiveness in Christ, to find restoration in him. Brother, sister, there is nothing, nothing, no amount of air that we've believed, no amount of falsehoods that we've embraced that are not forgivable. Jesus will forgive us. He'll lead us in the truth. He'll lead us to righteousness if we'll only trust and believe in him. Let us resolve, brothers and sisters, to fight against theological error. Let us do so with, a, with faith and a good conscience. And let us do it with this aim in mind of restoration and repentance and renewal for the sake of their souls. The question I began with and this question I leave you with is, do you have the resolve to fight against theological error? You know, there's a hymn that we often sing in this church. Probably one of your favorite hymns. Did you know that hymn was written about Ridley and Latimer and Cramner? When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. You God used the flames, the literal flames, to restore the soul of Cranmer. And he can use the trials in your life to resolve you to fight against error and to faithfully follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory this morning. We pray that you would do a work in us for your glory. Father, I ask that, that we might have the resolve to graciously and lovingly confront sin and err and call people to the truth. Help us to do that for your glory. Help us to live lives committed to the truth, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. May we uphold that and May we do so with a good and clear conscience. 
Renew our minds, remove our consciences that we might be holy as, as you are holy, Lord Jesus. And give us the resolve in these dark days to stand upon the truth. We pray this for your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name.